right. So, um, when Matt set up this sermon series, he was scheduled to give this morning's message. When Jacob and I stepped in to give Matt a little break, I was assigned this message, and go ahead, next slide. You can see that I made the necessary change to the sermon. Yes, I changed the name of the sermon title from what the church was meant to be God's army to God's Marines, because we all know that the Marines are the tougher branch of the military and definitely the superior fighting force. Oh, yeah, I like this. A little more pro-Marine crowd than last, last, last service. I had a bunch of old Army vets ready to bum-rush the stage, believe it or not. Yes, I am a Marine veteran, and having served for five years back in the 90s, I'm thrilled that after 20 years of ministry, I can finally bring my full military experience up here to the Sunday morning platform. No intermittent stories here and there. You're getting the full barrel treatment. Um, and in case you didn't notice, we in the military like to have our good-natured inter-service uh, rivalry. Uh, and so in the spirit of that good nature, I would like to say thank you to the other three major branches. Uh, first, to say thank you for your service. First, if you are in the Army, thank you. I understand that PT nowadays is uh, duck, duck, goose. That's a real picture. But whatever the Army is choosing to do with their time, I guess that's their business. We know, though, this, we found some strategic planning in a back room where the Army was consoling each other, knowing that, hey, the Marines were going to be in the hot zone first to take care of the hard work, and they could follow in afterwards. If you're in the Navy, thank you for your service. These fellows were out the other night partying, having a good time. We know how those sailors like to enjoy their, their nightlife. And also, the Navy serves an important role in military matters, giving us rides to where we need to go to do the real fighting and accomplish the real warfare uh, for our country. And then our hard-charging Air Force. I don't know what to say. They brought in an inflatable for their PT. I have no explanation. That's a real picture of, a, uh, I guess, something with the, the Air Force. I will say this, though. This young fellow was really excited to complete his six weeks of basic training, really excited to get on with his Air Force enlistment. So. Uh, Thanks to the other three services as well for your contributions to our nation's protection and security. Now, why all the military stuff? Well, no, it's not Veterans Day. That's November 11th, roughly three weeks from now. So remember that and thank a veteran uh, on or near that date when it happens. We are in the middle of a sermon series called What the Church is Meant to Be. And we'll come back to the military part in a minute. But as a means of review and to get us all caught up, the church was not designed to be this, a building. It was not wood or brick or mortar or even a location. That idea of the church did not develop until the 4th or 5th century. And it's a, it comes from a German uh, word of a building. And uh, the idea of church was actually from the uh, Greek word ekklesia, and it means assembly, a gathering. No location, just a gathering of the people of God or the true followers of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, well, Jeremy, why do you say true followers of Jesus Christ? Well, because the Bible differentiates numerous times between people who are interested in God and spiritual things and might even think they are Christians from those who are true followers. This might be news to you this morning, and if so, that's great. A true follower, as the Bible defines it, is somebody who has repented of their sins, 
They've placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. You must come to a realization that you are a sinner and incapable of saving yourself apart from the intervention of God, that good works will not suffice. And then having been forgiven of your sins, pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ with your lives in response to the grace and forgiveness that he's given you. That's where the term his followers comes from. His follower doesn't just mean he's on a path and I'm I'm walking after him. It means the life that Jesus lived, I want to live. That's following. That's the pledging allegiance port. And if you're here this morning, you're just checking things out and you're not yet a true follower or you don't know anything about that, you're just wanting to find out more about God, then we are thrilled that you are here. We are so glad that you're here, that you've taken time. We hope to bless you in your pursuit of truth. We want to affirm you in that uh, this morning is for the church. It is for the true believers. Um, and so if you're here this morning, uh, that we're going to be talking to you. We have some previous messages that you might want to check out on our website or on our YouTube page about different things the church is supposed to be. I highly recommend those. But this morning, we're going to discuss the church as God's army, <coughs> I'm sorry, as God's Marines. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump in. Now, army is a noun, but it's also a proper noun. A proper noun for army uh, would be like the U.S. Army. But what is an army exactly? Small a army. Because the Marines in its organization is actually a form of, of an army called Marines. So what is an army? Well, an army is a number of uh, characteristics in its definition. First, it's a large organized body. It is a group of people, different people, brought together. Not randomly brought together, but organized. And in the morning in the army, they don't just call general names, they call specific names because each person has been assigned to a unit. You are part of a unit, you've been assigned to a unit when you're part of that army. And you are not an individual. You surrender your individualism and you learn to function together as one, one cohesive unit. Um, within an army, which is a great size, an army is a description of a, a very large military unit. A Patton in World War II, if you know uh, your World War II history, he led the third army across France in 1944 and 45 to beat back the Nazis. Uh, there was the Eighth Army. There are these large armies that have uh, fought over the years. And within an army, you have smaller units. You have divisions, you have regiments, you have battalions, and you have a platoon. And there are others, I didn't hit all of them, but those are some of the smaller units, military units, within a larger army, okay? And they all have the same characteristics as the army, the larger unit. An army is also armed. Army, armed. Interesting correlation there. I don't know if you ever made that connection. They're equipped with whatever is necessary for, for, for their objective. Could be weapons, could be supplies, could be training. But an army is equipped. It's also, it has, as I mentioned, it has a mission. It has a specific objective. Each army, each military unit has a purpose for which it exists. It has a purpose for which it exists, for which everybody in that unit are, are moving together in unison towards. And then fourthly, as I said, it works together. It works together. It takes a bunch of disparate individuals and it makes them one. It makes them one. 
Now, this is really hard. I don't know if you know that. But taking a group of individuals in any, it could be a sport, team sport, it could be something, and bring them together to function together as one, let alone in a military capacity with the precision that you're supposed to have is a very difficult task. The importance of being one unit and no longer a group of individuals was made very clear to me when I arrived at Paris Island for boot camp in March of 1993. I arrived on a bus, much like this one. And you can see the different hair colors and the shirts and we were a bus full of individuals arriving in South Carolina and a drill instructor just like that got up and welcomed us very warmly to the island where we would spend the next three months, not really, and began yelling and screaming at us to get off of his bus. And that began the long and difficult journey of going from an individual to becoming part of a unit. And the unit that we would become a part of in boot camp is called a platoon. It's a unit of roughly 40 to 80 people, depending on the time of year and the size you can see. There is a platoon that graduated right around the time that I did. Now, the pixelization has to be very high because if you didn't know where you were standing in that, if without a name on your uniform, you would not know where you were. There are no individuals standing up there. Everybody there understands the purpose of their existence within that military unit is to serve the larger unit. Jesus actually speaks of this. He speaks of this insistence, this importance of becoming one, of coming together, of not being a bunch of different people sitting here on a Sunday morning, but merging our lives as best we can together in an individual world with individual personalities and inclinations. We might be the most individualized people in the history of the world to ever exist, to not see ourselves as part of a larger group, family, clan, whatever, but to see ourselves as individuals. In fact, in John 17, which the whole chapter is a beautiful prayer of Jesus to his Father right before going to the cross and his death, he says this in verses 21 through 23. He says, "...that they may all be one." Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, in them, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The emphasis he places in these three verses on the importance of unity and becoming one. This unity and cohesion, it doesn't happen easily or quickly. It doesn't happen easily or quickly in the military. It doesn't happen easily or quickly here in the church because we are prone to divide and to separate ourselves. This journey towards union, unity, cohesion, is illustrated beautifully in boot camp. Now, in addition to things like physical fitness and marksmanship with the rifle and learning about Marine Corps history and traditions, we spend a lot of time in boot camp doing what you would call drill or what you guys know as marching. Hours and hours of drill up and down the parade deck. Now, when you first arrive at boot camp, you get 60 guys, I had 66 guys in my platoon, just to stand in a row and a column and not meander about like a mob is difficult. You're supposed to stay in the column behind the person in front of you, and you're supposed to stay 
abreast with the person in your row, and you walk left, right, left, right. That, as simple as that seems, if I were to take a bunch of you up here, we'd look like fools. It is very hard. It takes so long. It takes hours. That's all we would do is get out there. It, literally, they would start. This is how you march. You extend your left leg, and you drive it to the ground with making a little thud with your heel. And you learn from the basics how to, be in, how to march in unison. Eventually, that changes, and it gets different. Soon enough, the platoon is moving around. Column right, march. Column left, March, order, arms. When you introduce a rifle into the, you're marching like this, and order arms, and you put the rifle up into your shoulder, and you hold it as you're marching. It gets a little more complicated with the weapon introduced. To the rear, march, platoon, halt. And they would tell us to say in our mind, step freeze, so that we knew when to stop. This is hard, and it takes time. However, in time, with practice, the entire platoon eventually responds to one singular command and doing so as one smooth and fluid singular unit. It's amazing. You hear a command and everybody moves together at the same time doing the same thing. It's a transformation. Jesus said that if we would be one, the world would believe that the Father sent him. And I believe that. Because if you've ever seen a group of people act in unison, I don't know if you remember the 2008 Chinese Olympics. It was amazing what they were able to do in unison, everybody moving together, or a military unit. In fact, the Marine Corps Silent Drill Team is a great example. Anybody ever seen the Marine Corps Silent Drill Team before? Okay, I recommend, get on YouTube and watch them. There is no command, and they just function together seamlessly. It's breathtaking. Here's another picture of them doing this slow march with their, with their rifles. When we as a church learn to come together in unity in a spiritual way, in a generosity towards each other, in a sacrifice towards each other, showing loving kindness to each other, whatever the situation may be, the world around us stands up and they notice because the world around is very separate and isolated and alone. This idea of unit cohesion and becoming one is really important for us as the church and God's Marine Corps. But this knife cuts both ways. As powerful as a unit working together as one can be, if you're the one guy who drops his rifle in that, what happens? <gasps> oh, it's terrible. If you're the one person making the mistake when everybody else is doing the right thing, it's mortifying. But not just in drill. What happens on the battlefield if you're the one person who doesn't know their command and you've got your fellow Marines or soldiers on your right and your left depending on you? You're at, out at night and you're supposed to be quiet and keep silent, but you break, you break silence. You give your position away. You, your whole unit might be sacrificed. But the same glory and beauty that we get from working together when one of us falls, it can be a really tragic thing. We've seen that in the past couple of weeks as individuals and families in our church have hurt 
and our suffering. We've come alongside and sought to love and serve them, and it's been a beautiful thing to rally around them and to encourage them. When somebody fails and falls into sin, it's not just them who's failing and falling. It hurts people around them. It hurts family. It hurts church family too. There are people who do not follow Jesus, who say no to the Christian faith because individuals, they refuse to follow. They profess a faith, but they refuse to actually follow the way of the master. I saw this revealed in boot camp with a young Marine named Shackelford. Recruit Shackelford. Oh, what the Lord has taught me over the years with Recruit Shackelford. Now, in the military, there's something called corporate punishment. That means if one person in your unit messes up, the whole unit gets punished, disciplined, whatever, okay? It's a common way of getting the whole team, it happens in football, it can happen in some team sports, one person messes up, everybody drops to the ground and does push-ups. This happens in the Zilke home from time to time as well as we learn to encourage and train the troops to, uh, to do what they need to do. The innocent suffer as alongside the guilty. Uh, it serves a purpose. But um, nobody personified this more than Shackelford. So, in this next slide, you can see this is the type of squad bay that we lived in. Okay, it's wide open, your racks are on the edge, you've got this big open space in the center. Then, when you're lined up, called getting online, everybody lines up in the squad bay like this, you see. And you're all like this on each side, and so if you're at the head of the squad bay, you look down, you can see anyone and everyone moving. So what do you do? You stand at the position of attention. All the time. You don't move. You just stand there. That's what you do, at attention. If a bug flies around you at the position of attention, what do you do? You stand there. You don't do anything. It's just a bug. If you get an itch in your arm at the position of attention, you go into this place in your brain and you decide mind over matter, it's just an itch. I don't have to scratch it. I'll be fine. And you stand there at the position of attention. Recruit Shackelford really struggled with itching. In fact, he, in fact, he earned the name Scratchelford instead of Shackelford because he would stand in that line and as soon as a drill instructor would turn the other way, and what he didn't know is there's drill instructors in the back, they're all over, they're watching everything we do, and he would go like this. And I was right across from him in the squad bay. And I could still see him. He's over with about two, two pieces down. And I'm furious. Like, turn, like the evil. I can't break bearing. And so how do you stop somebody from doing something without being able to do anything to stop it? Oh, it was infuriating. And he'd get away with it sometimes. But other times, that drill started to come running, screaming, what are you doing? Everybody, get on your face. And the push-up and the fun would begin. And that's how we were trained. Sometimes they'd send us out to the big sandbox out in the yard. Yes, there was a big sandbox. We got to do push-ups and mountain climbers and all kinds of exercise in sand. That's even more fun, just to add to the misery level a little bit. And that is what happens when one person wouldn't fall in line. This is important because the goal is not to alienate and embarrass that one person to a point of negative 
long-term impact. The point is to encourage everybody to step up and to give their best and to do their best and maybe do something they don't expect they can do. That's what it means to be part of a unit. That's what it means to be part of a cohesive military unit and army. Now, now that we know what an army is and we've talked at length about that, I have three things for us as we close. What does an army do? Answer three questions. What does an army or a Marine Corps unit do? Well, there's three things for us to remember. The first is we train. That's what the army does. It's what the military does. They train. We are still part of a larger unit, but each person knows where they are weak. We train both corporately together, but we also train individually. Okay? We have a responsibility to train in our unit together, but if we're not functioning well, if we're not good with our weapon, if we're not good with whatever tactical aspect of our job is, if we're not good physically, we aren't as fit, we do what we can do so that the larger unit doesn't suffer. Me, my weak area, um, you see how I'm designed. I have very short legs. I was given a tree trunk for a body. My, I'm very dense, and I have a very uh, low buoyancy. I sink when I, put in, when I'm in, when I get in the water. Uh, but I can do push-ups like mad. I can do pull-ups like mad. I can do sit-ups. But what these little legs don't do well is run fast. And so for every three or four steps that I'm taking, some of these gazelles are running two, two strides. And I was always slower and had to work harder at my running. So we'd run as a unit. We'd be out there running in... Up in the morning with the rising sun, we'd be doing our thing. But then I would go out at night, and I would also run more. And I'd look for hills, because hills are a great way to build your endurance, and I would run up those hills, because I needed more training in that area than what some other person might have needed. I recognized what my weakness was. Well, this is part, being part of the church. We all have areas of strength, and we all have areas of weakness, and as part of God's Marines, we train. First Timothy 4, 7, 8 says this, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Are you afraid to pray? Do you struggle with prayer? Train. And how do you train? You pray. You just do it. Practice on your own. Practice saying it out loud. Did you know there are people in your life that would be blessed by hearing you pray for them? Could be children, could be siblings, could be nieces, nephews, grandchildren, parents. You can be a blessing to so many people if you have the courage and the confidence to pray. And if you struggle to do it individually, we have team prayer here. We have prayer meetings that meet on Tuesday morning. right there in the lounge at 8.30. We have prayer meetings that meet on Sunday afternoons. If you're not sure how to pray, come and watch how others pray. Learn how it's done. Take a stab at it. Say a short, but, but get out there and train. Practice doing something that you might not be all that fervent in doing. Secondly, reading our Bible. The number one indicator of spiritual fervency in the Christian life is regular time reading the Bible. There is no other exception. Coming to church, doing service, nothing. Nothing is as an effective an indicator of a person's spiritual health as daily time with God. 
It's his holy word. His spirit promises to work and commune with us as we open, humble ourselves, set apart time and read it. And he works in that time. It's hard to understand. It's difficult. Some of the passages can be complicated. But it's also incredibly fulfilling. Because when you come across that verse, that gives you that hope for the day. When you come across that promise of God that carries you through that difficult time, few things for the Christian are more valuable and more joyous than the word of God being applied to our lives. Now, know that inertia is against you. The world and inertia is against you. You will be opposed in your practicing this. And so you've got to push through that. Just like in training, you have to push through the obstacle when it comes at you. Also, if you're not good with the Bible, still practice reading it, but join up for one, sign up for one of our small groups. We have small groups and Bible studies happening all over and of all kinds where they will assist you. They will, together, you can go through a, a, a Bible study or a book related to the scriptures and get help and encouragement in your journey and in your own personal training. All right, so we train. The second thing we do is we fight. We fight. For some of you, it's like, oh, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Jeremy, I don't fight. If you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, you fight. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, and we can assume that we do is here as well, we do wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This morning, when you and I woke up, there was a war waging around us. Right now, as I stand up here and as you sit there, there's a war waging around us. When we leave this afternoon and go home to have lunch or do whatever we do in the afternoon, there will be a war waging around us. It's the nature of the Christian life. It's spiritual. There's always a war. And we are asked to enter into the battle. God asks his followers to enter into the battle. That's where the army, the marine picture comes from. We're called to fight. But we don't fight as earthly units fight. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And if you want to know what our weapons are, the rest of Ephesians 6 talks about that. Our weapons are prayer. Our weapons are the word of God. Our weapons are faith expressed in accordance with the gifts that God has given us. And you know what our weapon is sometimes? Our weapon sometimes is taking the shot from the enemy and turning the other cheek and loving them and showing them that we don't have to demand justice and retribution from them for what they've done. Many of our foremothers and forefathers won their war by following the path of Jesus and not defending themselves. This battle's a different kind of battle, but do not, we cannot be deceived. It is a battle nonetheless. We train, we fight, and finally, we follow our leader. Great leaders have always led their troops bravely. I'm kind of a war history buff, and so I, I love to uh, read and find out about how the great generals and great military leaders of, of history have done it. Alexander the Great was just a kid, but he was incredibly successful. 
He obviously had gifts and charisma, but he also led from the front. He never asked his troops to do anything that he himself wouldn't do. And he led them to great victory, conquering thousands of square miles of Europe and Africa and Asia. Julius Caesar, another great historical general, was getting into all sorts of trouble as he was trying to conquer the Gauls and and gain power in Rome. And he was always present at the front of his fight, of his battle, coming up with that new idea, helping his troops create that new ingenious tactic that was going to win the day. And his troops, they loved him. They followed their leader. I have one more example that we're going to talk about. Before we do that, I want to introduce communion because at the end of our time today, we're going to come up and we're going to share communion. And so I want to give the communion disclaimer now, the instructions so we can just move forward at that time and continue with communion. Here at Rooftop, uh, we practice open communion, which means that anybody can participate regardless of church, home, or denomination. Anybody who believes that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God and has demonstrated that, as I said earlier, through repentance and also through baptism. Uh, the greeters are going to come up here. I'm going to give them the cup and the bread. You'll come down two, two rows down the center aisle and then outside. You'll tear off a piece of bread. You'll dip it in the cup, take it, and you'll make your way around. If you're on the outer aisle, don't worry about climbing over. You can go to the back and just follow the circle to come in. Those of you in the top don't have to move anywhere. We'll bring somebody up with your communion. We have a gluten-free option up here as well. And as always, at the end, if you have mobility issues, when the line has died down, raise your hand, and we'd love to come and serve you. All right. Now, the third example I want to give you comes from a movie that many of you have seen. How many of you have seen the movie Braveheart? All right, still, it's 24 years old now, but it's still, still holding strong. I like it. Braveheart is a semi-accurate telling of a Scottish rebel named William Wallace. The Scottish people who are the northern portion of the British Isles had been subjugated under ruthless and terrible rule by the King of England. Uh, and they had, been, they had been abused terribly, and they, they wanted their freedom. But in order to get their freedom, they would have to fight. But the British army was organized. It was resourced. It was powerful. And the Scots were just a ragtag group of farmers with pitchforks and axes, disorganized. Well, William Wallace rises up out of there. And if you've seen the movie or if you've read, he begins to rally his Scotsmen, his fellow Scots, to become organized to learn how to fight, to learn how to maneuver together, all the things I talked about, to to become a cohesive military unit. And he actually wins a big battle. And after that, the king takes some underhanded steps, and rather than just fight him straight up on the battlefield, he begins to pay off people and ends up betraying William Wallace on the battlefield after that. And then a second time, he is betrayed, and he is captured, and he is taken to London, and he is tortured and his body is torn into pieces. And it is dispersed throughout the British, the English kingdom to try to deter the Scots from further rebellious activities. William Wallace was a man, according to the movie, of great integrity and great courage. And his sacrifice, even though he knew probably he was going to be betrayed and tortured, he went anyway to this meeting where he was captured. He gave himself freely and you're going to show you a clip here. The Scots are going to come. They're going to bend the knee to the English king. 
They're going to be given pseudo-freedom, uh, and it'll all be done. And so this is supposed to be just a ceremonial clip. No battle was planned, but something else happens, and let's watch the clip. Bleed with me. Hollywood and nice movie production. But great wars were won in that way before our cynicism kicked in. Great achievements throughout history have been accomplished through the courage of an individual and the rallying of their people behind that individual. I don't know what war you're fighting. I don't know what your battle is. But we're going to take communion here in a moment. Be motivated. Be encouraged. I get goosebumps when that sword hits the ground with the bagpipes in the background. At some point, Jesus should make us feel that way. Should give us freedom from our tyranny of the mundane and help lift us up. Give us energy. Give us encouragement. Give us motivation. So we're going to offer the items. As you come, be encouraged. Be motivated by your general who walked this terrible path before us and now asks us, hey, just follow the path after me and I'll take care of you.